Welcome to Broadcast Dialogue, the podcast. I'm Connie Teeson. It's like Andrew Cash's whole life has led up to his new role as the president of the Canadian Independent Music Association. With roots in the Toronto punk scene before going on to a successful solo career and eventually getting elected as the Member of Parliament for Toronto Davenport, Cash has long been an advocate not just for independent musicians, but anyone trying to make a living in the arts. On this episode of the podcast, we welcome Cash to talk about taking the helm of SEMA as the Canadian music scene faces an uncertain future, the organization's push for a more flexible CanCon definition, and his take on controversial amendments to Bill C-10. Hi, I'm Andrew Cash, and I am the new... Uh, president and CEO of the Canadian Independent Music Association. I uh, come to this role after pursuing uh, many winding paths, and they all seem to actually be pointing in this direction. I was a a longtime uh, musician, singer, songwriter, performer, producer, toured all over Canada, the U.S., the U.K., put out a bunch of records, and and I uh, also, uh, you know, at various points in that career, did a bunch of writing for the Toronto Weekly, now magazine. And all of that experience was was incredible, and it uh, taught me a lot. But, I, you know, I started to think a lot about my situation as an independent artist, as a, as a you know, sort of a jack of all artistic trades, uh, a freelance or a contract worker. And... I started to think about, you know, how precarious it is to work this way. And I was looking around for, you know, who else was talking about the way I work, the way people in the arts and culture sector work, or or, or people who are solo self-employed. And I couldn't find anything. It started to bother me. And, I, I you know, I'd listen to the public debates about work, and they were dominated by the conversation around a formalized employee employer relationship and i i couldn't relate to that and i and i suspected there were a lot of people out there who worked like me you know couldn't access uh health and dental benefits or or sick leave or minimum wage or uh, employment insurance uh and the list goes on and on actually anyway that got me interested in trying to bring some of these issues into the public uh, forum, and, and I um, decided I would run in uh, the 2011 federal election as a NDP candidate here in Toronto. Uh, I won that election and uh, had an incredible four and a half years in Parliament, and really pushed these issues. and And you know, it was really, you know, I, I suspected that people in Parliament, both the politicians and the bureaucrats, didn't really have a sense of what it's like. To, to earn a living in the arts and culture sector. That, that was my hunch. And I have to say, in all humility, that my hunch was totally correct. Uh, people really, really don't know. Uh, it's, you know, and, and it's a culture there dominated by people who have stable full-time jobs with a defined benefit pension and all of that stuff. And so I really tried to punch through with this, with this conversation. I didn't win that uh, the next election, but I wanted to keep doing this work. So I co-founded a small uh, nonprofit called the Urban Worker Project, which was there to raise the issues and the voices of 
contract workers, solo self-employed, freelancers, generally independent workers writ large. And we did a lot of, uh, of uh, skill sharing and skill building and advocacy, public advocacy. And, you know, all of that work, which is really just really important to me and, uh, you know, diverse experiences are really the kind of skill set that was required for for this job uh, running the Canadian Independent Music Association. And so I'm delighted and excited and honored and energized to, to be in this role. And I'm really looking forward to seeing what we can do. It really does seem like you're uniquely positioned to take on the leadership of SEMA, but your roots are in punk rock. And so I think that, you know, sort of shift into politics and advocacy is natural, isn't it? It absolutely is. And, you know, <laughs> it's funny you should mention that because I'm. this is, I don't know, maybe day 22 for me. And I really, you know, I really care about independent of the independent music sector, like it's in my bones, you know, that like that's what punk rock's about is do is, is that DIY mentality. It's like, we can do this. We don't need the man to do this. We don't need anyone to tell us that we can do this. We can just do this. And, you know, many of the members of, of SEMA have that ethos too. I mean, most people uh, who, who embark upon some kind of creative venture in music uh, have to have that kind of attitude really, because it's tough to survive and you have to be, you have to have that attitude. You have to have that drive. So speaking of tough to survive, paint a picture for us of the situation for a lot of the SEMA membership right now. How have the first few weeks on the job been? Well, you know, the membership is pretty varied. I have to say, I have to say you know, because we do have labels uh, who are members, independent labels, and, and even among the label community, the reality and the, the types of labels and the levels that they're at are, are all quite different from, from you know, very large uh, labels who have uh, offices internationally to uh, you know just to, to real real lean mean startups of of one person so so we've got that and we've got a bunch of managers we have some artists entrepreneurs people in the recording sector and so it is quite varied but fundamentally as you know it's not going to come to uh, as a surprise to you but covid has really uh really uh taken the sector out at the knees everyone's just about everyone's revenue is down significantly some of the labels down up upwards of 80 percent managers and lost you know a significant amount of of revenue that was on their books for 2021 and the artists well actually before i get to the artists there's all the infrastructure around the artists you know the the roadies the sound people the the lighting people, you know, the drivers, there's all of all of them. And then the artists themselves uh, not being able to play live. I mean, it really underlines, you know, a lot of the economic, well, I'm going to use the word precarity one more time in this interview, the economic precarity of this model that is predicated on live performance for the artists to survive. I think it's, it's fair to say that the CERB, uh, the uh, emergency benefit that uh, the federal government created after the first wave of the pandemic has been uh, a basically the lifeline for most people in the arts and culture sector. And 
as that starts to wind its way down, government just announced that they'd like to wind this thing down by the end of September. That's you know raises a lot of questions. I'm really concerned about that date. Now, get, you know, mind you, there's the, the government's also pumped a ton of money into Heritage Canada to sort of bridge the gap, I think, between the end of September and whenever we get out of the pandemic. So it's an open question right now as to how that money is going to get dispersed to the community. Right. Quoting the Canadian Live Music Association, their estimates indicate a $233 million drop in revenue. That's just the independent music sector. 64% of the live music industry at risk of permanent closure and a 92% revenue loss. Is there a clear path to recovery at this point or is it all still too uncertain at this juncture? There's not a clear path. Definitely not. If you just think about where everyone is today, right? And you're a manager of a band, you're a band, you're a label, and you're trying to plan, what, a tour in, you know, three months, let's say. Well, you don't know whether you're going to be able to do that. You know, there's no guarantee that anything's going to be open in three months. And even if we get a handle as as a country on the pandemic, you know, by the end of June, middle of July. Uh, It's still very unclear whether we'd be able to travel outside of Ontario, let alone outside of Canada. I think, let me back up, I think when the the first wave came, everyone just thought it was going to last maybe a month or so. And so people were kind of pretty buoyant and, and just like, wow, this is weird, but we'll move on as soon as we get a handle on it. Now, it's more like, well, we don't know when we're going to get through this. And that's really affected people's ability to plan things. And, you know, when we did that study that you're quoting, uh, that was a SEMA study that that was done before my time, but it was done in the first wave and that number 233 million. But it's, it's increased significantly in the second wave and third wave, right? So the losses are, are really massive. One of the messages that we're trying to, to bring, uh, especially to our government partners is that the support for the recovery is going to be every bit as important as the support that's been there just to keep people hanging on throughout the pandemic. Well, there was $20 million in the federal budget aimed directly at the music industry, but does that even make a dent in these huge revenue Yeah, it, it, that's true. There's been uh, more money uh, actually in, in this recent budget but there's no doubt, uh, you know, look, the sector was in need of, of a, a larger shot of government investment before the pandemic. And then the pandemic hit and, and that really, you know, it really put things in, in a dire spot. I think on the live side, that's where it seems really up in the air what things will look like when, when this thing's over, because anything that has anything to do with um, mass gatherings is, has got a big question mark looming over it right now. Broadcasting and radio have always been a part of that independent music ecosystem. Do you see a role for radio in the post-pandemic recovery? Or what could stations be doing now? That It's tough for me to totally say I've had my head down for the last 21 days getting getting accustomed to what we're doing at SEMA. But 
yeah, there's no doubt that the, the partnership's been strong there between between music and uh, and the radio stations. I think there's a lot of stations with a significant voice in their own communities, you know. And one of the one of the things that we're participating in right now is a, a campaign around around vaccine hesitancy and and trying to dispel the some of the myths around this. So when when we've got enough vaccine for everyone that you know, everyone or as close to everyone as possible gets it. So I, I mean, I think there's a real role for any institution or organizations that have a public voice be participating in that sort of thing. Staying with radio, SEMA was involved in a joint submission as part of the CRTC's commercial radio review, which actually recommends a more flexible approach to the definition of Canadian content and the maple system. So for those who don't know, for radio purposes, Maple defines how Canadian something is according to four criteria, music, artist, performance, and lyrics. Do you want to talk about those changes, Andrew? The way they phrase it in the document is creating more pathways to eligibility. So when you think about how a lot of music is, is written today, it's, it's really tough to say. It's, you know, only music that has a very clear one lyric writer and one music writer music just isn't written that way often anymore there's oftentimes multiple people involved in the writing of of music in the production of music someone has written some of the lyrics some of the music and is the producer or the engineer part of it could be could have been recorded in uh, los angeles and part of it could have been recorded in scarborough what we're trying to do with our recommendation and is to reflect the reality of music today and also to understand that that you know the maple system makes it harder for certain types of music certain racialized communities to get access to listeners because this current system doesn't really reflect their reality at all. And obviously the process of recording is much different because people are making records on their laptops in their bedrooms. Absolutely. I mean, really, like, could anyone have imagined 40 years ago, A, that we would be doing this, even this podcast, the way we're doing it here, <laughs> you know, let alone how music is made, how music is marketed. It's just a, a an incredible revolution. And, you know, frankly, I think we're just at the beginning of just massive technological transformation. And so, you know, there's no doubt that the Canadian music business and the explosion of it over the last 40 years, the, the CanCon Maple system uh, really contributed to that. And we developed, a, a, you know, incredible artists and, and audiences. But we need to move into, uh, the, into the modern era. Our submission also reflects you know, the voices that traditionally have been left out, Indigenous artists, BIPOC artists, female artists. And we are suggesting that those communities are, are counted in the system as well. As I'm sure you're aware, Bill C-10 is back in the headlines. You previously served on the Canadian Heritage Committee and the Special Committee on Copyright Act Reform. You have to remind me of that? <laughs> <laughs> I, I'd love to hear your thoughts on the direction of where this legislation is headed. Well, I think it's headed in the, in the right direction. 
you know, you've got streaming services that are, they're sort of radio 3.0 in a way, you know, and you've got international platforms like Netflix competing with conventional broadcasters here in Canada, but none of them uh, have any of the responsibilities or obligations that broadcasters, radio stations, Rogers, Bell, they don't have any of the obligations that other companies or other broadcasters have. And I think that C10 rightly is trying to bring those digital service providers into the structure of the Broadcasting Act. In other words, to level the playing field to, to the degree that it's possible to do that. And in broad strokes terms, I think there's some really good things in here. And so we support it. With amendments, we've suggested some. But, you know, is C10 a perfect bill? Well, you know, I don't know. What, what, of course not. But what is, other than awesome music, what really is perfect out there in life? I see the direction that the government is going, and I think that, I, th I think the intent, the sort of, the, sort of like the overall intent of leveling the playing field, bringing the DSPs, these international mammoth companies who pay no taxes and contribute uh, no funds into Canadian content development, while everyone else has to, attempting to, to bring them in is important. It's important for the, uh, not just the music sector, obviously, film and television too. Right. I mean, the buzz this week, or concern, I mm. guess I should say, is is because of the removal of the exclusion of user-generated social media content that you might upload to TikTok or YouTube. Right. Where is that line between free speech and the copyright story? Well, I would like to, first of all, humbly, how do I say it, suggest that maybe that's not quite what's happening here. As I've just said, you know, the government's trying to bring, you know, the Spotify's and the Apple Music's and the Netflix's and the Amazon's of the world into the structure of the Broadcast Act. So what's the number one source of music in Canada right now is YouTube. So the, the initial writing of the bill excluded social media companies. And then they realized, well, wait a sec. If we're, if we're bringing, you know, Apple Music and Spotify into the act, but leaving out the biggest one, that's ridiculous. So the, the clause in the bill that, that exempted social media, okay, social media companies, uh, was removed. But what wasn't removed was protection for the people who use social media, who upload user-generated content. So that's why I'm saying I, I, I respectfully disagree with your interpretation. It's actually the people who, you know, the regular Joe Blows, anyone like you and me who are uploading cat videos, you know, we're, we're still going to be able to do that. The clause that was taken out was, was the exception for social media companies to be part of the act. But there, there's still protection for people. It's right there. It's clause 2.1 if you really want to get into the weeds. Um, and it and it's basically very clearly states that if you're a person using social media to upload programs um, for transmission over the internet and to be received by others, other users of a service like a social media platform, that does not put you into the structure of the act. In other words, you just keep on doing that, but but you can't. How can how can you have rules for for Spotify and Amazon and Apple Music and not have rules for YouTube? It, it just would not work, right? So no, no, 
I, I really think that those that are opposing Bill C-10 for a variety of different reasons thought they had an issue here that they could torque, create some mayhem and some tension and some stress for the government, which they largely <laughs> were successful in doing. But I don't think that at the end of the day, the argument is going to hold at all. Congrats on your new role and thank you for joining us. Well, thank you. Thanks for asking me. I really enjoyed chatting with you. Thanks for listening to Broadcast Dialogue. For more information about the podcast or to receive exclusive access to our weekly briefing about the Canadian media industry, visit us at broadcastdialogue.com. Don't forget to like us on Facebook, connect with us on LinkedIn, and follow us on Twitter and SoundCloud. I'm Jeff Woods, and I'm shining a light on music and the rock stars who make it. He just was one of those people. He, he stood out. He was a magic guy. He really was a magic guy. All, we all have force. He had the same amount of force as we all have. This was before Led Zeppelin. Robert was full on. I mean, he was Led Zeppelin without the band behind him. He had the hair, the jeans, the whole thing, you know. And he was amazing. The Records and Rockstars podcast heard around the world and yours to hear wherever you get podcasts. All the episodes from JeffWoodsRadio.com.